0: glad
1: you joined us for New Hope's Sermon of the Week. For more resources, be sure to contact newhopecom.org. We
0: hope you enjoyed this week's message.
1: So um, this morning we get to hear from Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Welton. Yeah, oh, we can do better than that. Hey, come on. That's good. Jonathan and Karen attend this church. The ministry for the Walton Academy is based out of here. In fact, that office over there. Um, Jonathan teaches an online Bible school. So, if you've never heard of it before, it's called Walton Academy. Uh, There's 800 plus students from all over the world that are in this school going through it. Uh, Thousands have graduated. So, it's a it's a big big thing. Um, He has a gift of taking the Bible and making it understandable, making it simple breaking old mindsets that maybe we learned or we, we always had these questions, right, about sometimes those things are nice to get answers to. Like, I never understood this. Well, he's very good at helping understand it. You know, so he's written a book called Understanding the Whole Bible, uh, Raptureless, uh, Normal Christianity, School of the Seers. There are many of them. We have them out there, actually, that you can purchase. Uh, but if you're stirred today, you know, go delve into it even more. Um, so it's a real, real honor to have him speak today on Easter Sunday. I know what he's sharing. It's going to be a powerful message. Might challenge even some things that you learned or you never really understood or fully agreed with. So just open up your heart to receive maybe even some new elements here that you may never have heard before. So give him a nice round of applause as he come on up. <laughs>
0: Well, before we uh, launch into the message, I have a little video for you guys. Is that ready? You can turn the lights down, that'd be great. I've never got to speak on such a special holiday. Happy April Fools, everyone. <laughs>
2: Okay, everybody, listen up. This is Easter. Shuttles and golf carts in the parking lot now. Has everyone in here, staff or volunteer, shared our graphically designed Easter invitation on their personal Instagram? This is for the kingdom. Who is trimming these hedges? A youth intern, for heaven's sakes. No, we don't have ministry time. We do have a petting zoo outside, though. And connect cards, connect cards, connect cards. Do we have the right mixture of haze in the fog machine? I mean, we don't need new members, but did we get the rose petals in the visitor parking spaces? We are pro-Jesus and pro-Easter Bunny. Donuts, check. Coffee, check. Make sure we have gluten-free communion, fat-free communion, Whole30 communion, vegan communion, paleo communion, non-GMO communion. Honestly, everybody needs to keep their phones out because I will be saying some very tweetable quotes this morning. The Easter basket is full, but the tomb is empty. He can put your life back together when it is in pieces, and some of y'all are still focused on Reese's. We need more diversity up on that stage. This is Easter. No, the youth pastor cannot do announcements. What about that one minority guy that came one time? Can we get him to do announcements? We don't want any visitor to feel uncomfortable in any way at any time, but we will ask him to fill out a connect card with their children's names and ages. I don't care what size the stage is, Becky. I need a rapper up there, a full choir, and six men dressed as Roman centurions. Why would you even ask about the worship set list? Is Jesus paid it all, Christ alone, Christ is risen? Can we just, can we get that other worship leader that's a little bit more attractive? This is the best great team we have. Who trained these people? For one Sunday, please, can you just not be weird? Can we put her at the auxiliary door? Quit your ministry, move these people out of here. We got a service starting in 15 minutes. Make sure all the visitors know They are under no pressure to give, okay? But we'd love to see them come back, and if they do come back, we're starting a series on giving next week.
0: Oh boy, well, a lot, of, uh, a lot of pressure this morning around the world, <laughs> church teams, ministry teams preparing for so many people, and if you are a visitor, thank you for coming out this morning. We appreciate that, and we are really one of the most warm uh, church bodies I know of as far as family and connection and, and love, and, and I hope you get to feel that this morning. Um, I... Uh, I wanna start with this. I actually never really enjoyed Easter very much. Um, I don't know if any of you relate to this, this was one of my least favorite Sundays because it can feel a little stuffy. And maybe not here, I don't believe that here, but growing up it felt like, whoo, this is like real intense. Like there's two year, you know, you get the Christmas, you get the hymns out, you get Easter, you get, you know, everybody you don't see the rest of the year comes out. So it's, it's a little bit different. And a few years ago, some things kind of shifted for me where I started to see see Easter in a different light. And so I want to share some of this different perspective with you this morning. Specifically, um, I want to lay out for you what I grew up with as what I call the modern gospel. So, the modern gospel, and maybe you've heard it this way the courtroom scene opens in front of you, there's God the Father as the judge probably a big beard, maybe bald, and he, <laughs> he's got a big black robe on, he doesn't look that friendly, and he's the judge. And you're standing before him, and you are the worst, most miserable, terrible piece of humanity that's ever come across this bench, and you're about to be sentenced to execution. You may have heard this version of the gospel at some point. And fortunately at the last moment, Jesus steps in the side door and says, no, 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 I'll take his place. And he steps in and you get to go free. And God, the father sentences him to what you earned or deserved as punishment. And that sets you free. And all you have to do is accept that Jesus as your replacement. Is this gospel that you have heard? Raise your hand if this is the gospel you've heard. Yeah, it's it's the very American modern version of the gospel. In fact, when some of these things started to change in my perspective a few years ago, and I shared some of these shifts in our, our Bible school, and Ralph sat right there in that same exact chair, And he listened to it and came up to me afterward and said, I did that message. I had a robe on. I had a gavel. It was one of my top 10 messages I've ever done in all my years of speaking. I did that message. So some of you may have heard it right here. So that version of the the message, let me me just finish out the thought. So it, it not only is it... Uh, the Son taking your place, but the Father can't even look on sin. The judge can't look on sin, and so he has to turn away and separate himself from the Son at the worst moment. So he yells, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That some have said is even more painful than the actual beating that Jesus went through was the emotional separation from God the Father they'd never experienced before. Then there's you add to that Isaiah 53 that says it pleased the father to bruise him. It pleased the father. Not only did he have to turn away, but he was happy about the whole situation. This leads to one of the first what I'm going to call Easter myths, that God the father was angry. Think about this. How does this courtroom scene end up? You end up very thankful for Jesus. Thank you that he took your place, right? You're thankful for that part, but it sets you up for the beginning of a Christianity where you are or should be afraid of the Father. And so many of us, we have a Jesus-based Christianity that doesn't have a relationship with God the Father because he doesn't really fit real well in this situation. He would he would do something like that, that, that kind of makes him a little scary, right? Now, what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some things. It might, it might shake some things that you have heard or thought or believed for a long time. And yet, what I want to inform you right up front is what I'm presenting this morning is actually the ancient view of the gospel. This is actually the gospel as it was understood for the first time 1,100 years of Christianity. It wasn't until there was a man named Anselm who came along in the 1100s who began to change the gospel a little bit, and then it got changed again in the 1500s through John Calvin, and it's given us a lawyer's perspective of the gospel. Everything is legal-based rather than family-based, rather than relational-based, and so we've gotten this, this lawyer-based version of the gospel and it, it can be a bit distasteful because it's not the original recipe. You just can't beat the real thing. <laughs> Triggering any memories there? <laughs> you can't beat the real thing. The original is best. And so we've gotten this, this distortion. And so I'm going to take a few of these apart today these seven Easter myths. The first one is that the father is angry. So, the challenge here is that if you go back to how Jesus actually presents the gospel, it's the story of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, we have this beautiful story where Jesus lays out and he says, There's a young son who demands his inheritance from his father. He gains it early, he goes away, spends all of the inheritance finally comes home and says, Father, just let me be a servant in your house. I've been eating uh, corn cobs in the pig sty. I've run out of the inheritance. And the father says, no, 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 none of that. I don't want to hear it. Just stop. And he puts the robe of, of, of sonship on him and a ring and sandals back on his feet and welcomes him back into the home. He doesn't even listen to the apology because the son is already forgiven. He's already loved. The father's just thrilled he's home. This doesn't fit with the judge in the robe. So we kind of have two very glaringly different pictures here. An angry father or the father in the prodigal son story. Number two, the father couldn't even look. He couldn't look at the son when the sin was put on him. Actually, what we see in in the New Testament is when Jesus cries out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22. Now, he's quoting the first line of Psalm 22. At that time in ancient history, they didn't, name, they didn't number their songs. The name of the song was the first sentence of the song. So he's not saying Psalm 22. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To any Jewish person standing around the foot of the cross who hears, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They don't think of just the one sentence. They think of the whole song. So the whole song is called to mind in that moment. What he's telling them is if you think of Psalm 22, you will understand what I'm doing right now on the cross. This is his explanation because As he's there, crucified, dying of asphyxiation, he's not going to sing them the whole song. (laughs) Let's be reasonable. So instead, he quotes the first line so they know. Think of Psalm 22, and I'll understand what's happening here. So in Psalm 22, we see, I'll just read a little bit of it. I'm going to start down in verse uh, 12. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. They're roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This is really eye-opening to any Jewish boy or girl standing around who hears this song and says, oh, I know that song. Oh, this is what I'm watching. His hands, his feet... Over there, they're casting lots for his clothes. They're getting all the pieces. His bones are out of joint. This, this is quite an amazing prophetic picture. When you get a little further down to verse 24, it says, For he, speaking of God the Father, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. we've been believing the exact opposite about the Father. We've heard an opposite story that makes him look like he wasn't there, he wasn't involved, he had to turn away. It was Jesus' most painful moment when in fact Jesus is saying to us he's not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry for help. It says in John... um, Fourteen. Jesus says in one point, he says, "You'll, you'll all leave me and I'll be alone, but I won't be alone because the Father will be with me. See, he wasn't surprised all of a sudden. Hey, where are you going? He didn't leave him. He was with him the whole time. And in fact, as you finish the psalm, They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it, or it is finished. He's not alone, confused, abandoned on the cross, wondering why this is happening, none of that. He's actually on the cross, taking dominion over the earth again, taking back what the enemy had taken. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were given authority over the planet, and when they submitted themselves to the lies of the enemy, they gave the authority that humanity had to the evil one. At that point, we were under an influence, and if you go back to those ancient cultures and you see there's so many fears of demons and gods and all these different gods that would torment the people until Jesus comes. And Jesus comes and he takes back the keys, and gives them back to humanity. He makes a new humanity. This is the whole idea of a new creation. It's taking it back. And and scientists have changed the the B.C. and A.D., and they've changed it to before the common era and after the common era. But they still say that it's Jesus. <laughs> Who created the common era? Why does it start at zero? Well, it's Still, because Christianity began to shift the whole planet at that moment and moved us into where we are now compared to where we were before that in an age of darkness for thousands of years. Things have changed. But there was a time when, when Jesus is on the cross and we thought that the Father had abandoned him. And that filter will skew how, our, how we see God the Father. It will distort what he's like and what he looks like to us. There's also the question of the Father punishing sin. Now, we talk in Christianity about forgiveness, that God will forgive you. And one of the things that we, we do with that is we say, well, he'll forgive you because he punished Jesus. But is that forgiveness? Let's think about this. Um, Ralph, let's say I'm a bank. And I'm going to loan you um, $100,000 so that you can buy a house. And you're going to pay it off over 20 years, um, 18% interest. It's a a good deal, Ralph. You should sign. 20 years, $100,000. You pay your check every week for 20 years. You finally finish it. You send in that last check. Let's say after 10 years, you've been doubling your payments. You're wise. And... You get your, your bill paid off, and you're expecting in the mail to get a letter from me, the bank, that says, you paid your debt, paid in full. Yay, right? That would be a great thing. You might even frame it. You might put it on the wall. I did it. Nobody does this anymore. I did it. And yet, you get a letter from me saying, thank you for the $100,000. I forgive your debt. And you're like, "Okay, can I have my $100,000?" <laughs> no, no, I forgave it. Thank you for paying. But it did what? John, you didn't forgive my debt. You pay, you I paid it. You can't forgive and pay. I can't say I forgive your debt. Thanks for all the money. There's there's a problem here. So God either has to receive payment for sin or he forgives sin. Yeah, you know, one or the other. Either you have a judge who is looking at every little thing and keeping a record of wrongs or you have a father who forgives. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, if you've been to a wedding, you've heard this read before. It says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. And John writes that God is love. So is he keeping a detailed little list of accounting? Or is he forgiving? When we go back again to the way the gospel was presented by Jesus, God the Father, being like the the, the father of the prodigal son, Where's the punishment? Where's the payment for what he did wrong? He comes home and he's forgiven. Welcome home, forgiven. See, the good news is gooder than you thought. (laughs) He comes home and finds out he's forgiven. He doesn't have to, okay, well, look, you really screwed up. So you're going to spend at least a year as a servant with everybody else, and then if you do it good enough, we'll let you into the house. And, you know, if you're really good, then we'll, we'll turn the heat on in your room. Or, you know, like, it's not like that. There's no punishment involved. He's forgiven. It's a very different picture. So our first three lies, the father was angry, the father couldn't look, and the father punished sin. Actually, a clearer passage for this is in Colossians 2. He says it so clearly in Colossians 2, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus on the cross, we'll start in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is really good news. Let's take this, this thought in... Uh, Isaiah 53 that many of us have heard quoted that it pleased the Father to crush Him or to bruise Him. This is a scary little passage because it would tell us a lot about what God the Father is like. It says in uh, verse Isaiah 53 verse 8 uh, that... For transgression of my people, he was punished. So you think, oh, punished. That overdoes everything we just said about forgiveness, right? And yet this is a bad translation. In the original Greek, what this says uh, in the Septuagint translation is it says that by the transgression of my people, he was plagued. The picture is that Jesus took on your sin, not as a punishment, but as a disease, plagued. Humanity has a disease called sin. Jesus took on and carried the disease of sin for us. He carried it like the plague. And it says in the the next verse, verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer is what the English says. But again, In the Septuagint, you have a very different understanding. It says, the Lord was pleased to purge him of his wound. To purge him, to take that thing that was on him. It actually, Jesus takes on the disease of sin and carries it to the cross. And God the Father is pleased. He's happy to wash the plague off of him. So different how we see the father when we get these things right or wrong. So the fourth lie, it pleased the father to bruise him. Number five, and this one might shift some of us quite a bit, the idea that we must plead for forgiveness. We think of the courtroom scene again, right? You go back to that courtroom scene, you're standing in front of him, and you're wanting to plead for forgiveness, This could include uh, coming every Sunday and standing before the altar and saying, forgive me, I did that thing again that I always do. I was angry, I was this, I was that. And we we have our weekly thing over and over again. We repent, we repent, we repent to try to reestablish, reattach the relationship. And we feel this distance, this disconnect over and over. And we have this legal approach to God. And he can't look at me. He can't interact with me because I have sin on my life, because I have this plague, because I... Does this sound like the father and the prodigal son story? Or is he saying, just come home. Come back. Stop all that stuff. See, it says in 1 John 2.2, he died not for our sins only, but for the sins of, of the entire world. Amen. What this means is that you are pre-forgiven. You're forgiven before you sin. You're forgiven while you sin. You're forgiven after you sin. So when we reapproach God, it's not to plead for forgiveness or prove, I really won't do it again. Just forgive me one more time. We're coming home to a father that says, look, you are already forgiven. You're pre-forgiven. I love you no matter what you ever do. No matter what you ever do, you're already forgiven. So come home and connect. This is a very different picture. For some of us, this, we, we think of uh, how how often we feel that feeling in our mind of, oh, I I just feel disconnected from God. And yet, the prodigal son, he felt disconnected, but the father's heart hadn't changed toward him. And the father's heart has not changed toward you. It doesn't matter what you do, his heart has not changed toward you. So when you come home, it's not about sniveling and, and trying to earn enough or try to be enough or try to cry enough tears of repentance for him to give you that warm feeling of forgiveness again. Because you're already forgiven the moment you come home. You're just coming back to receive it. You're already forgiven. Number six, and this is a cliche that many of us have said or heard or heard someone else say, is that you're a sinner saved by grace. This is a hard one because culturally it's so ingrained in us. And it's, it's an attempt at humility. Well, I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. We're trying to keep ourselves attached to a humble idea, a humble attitude, and not think too much of how amazing we are and whatever, whatever it is we're trying to avoid. Sinner saved by grace. Here's the thing, though. The actual gospel says you're a new creation. So we're talking about two different people. You cannot any longer say, if you've come to know the Lord, that I am a sinner, Because you were, but now he's made you a new creation. We're talking about two different people. Because according to the understanding of the gospel, the sinner went into the grave with Jesus. And then you walked out. So you're not dragging your corpse with you. That thing stays there. See, it says in, uh, in Romans chapter 6, we get this picture that explains, if you've ever wondered about what is water baptism about, the whole idea of water baptism is explained in Romans chapter 6. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Those who have died to sin, how can they live in it? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. We have been united with him in his death like his. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Here's another thing that gets confused and messed up with the courtroom situation. Jesus walks in. He takes your punishment for you. You get to go free. In that scenario, with that modern rendition of the gospel, you are a sinner saved by grace. Because you're a sinner, nothing about you has changed. You walk out of the courtroom, thanks, Jesus. You're not a new creation. Nothing about your life has changed. You're thankful that he took your place, that he took your punishment, that the angry father beat him up instead of you, and he seemed happy about it. <laughs> in this whole distorted version of the gospel, that's what you end up with. You don't end up with, I actually, here's what really happens, okay? If we were to take that distorted courtroom situation, Jesus walks in, stands next to you. Here's the, here's the, uh, you know, the case against Jonathan Welton. And I'm like, "Are you gonna let me go? Like, you're gonna take my spot, right?" That's what I heard at church. And he's like, "Talking about no, I'm not taking your spot. I'm I'm gonna die with you." Wait, so I still gotta die? Yeah. (laughs) We're both gonna die. (laughs) This is a very different picture. (laughs) Okay. Well, what? How's that help me? Now two of us are going to die. You didn't even do anything. <laughs> Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Not Christ took my place, took my crucifixion, and I got to go free unchanged. Yay! No, that's not the case. He actually steps in, so we die together. How is that any help?" because you're dead with Jesus and you come out of the grave when he comes out of the grave so you both come out now you might not remember this but it happened you were there some of you are very forgetful See, what Jesus does is he goes and he dies 2,000 years ago into the grave, comes out of the grave. And you go, Well, how was I connected to that? Because when you get water baptized, you are doing a prophetic act that takes you into the water, like going into the grave. And when you come out, you come out a new person. It's not, woo, spooky but it's a prophetic act. It's something you're saying, This I'm identifying with what Jesus did, and I will come out in a resurrection life like he did. That's why we got to dunk you real good. <laughs> really get it under there. So the baptism of water is actually that picture where you receive into yourself that same experience where you say, yes, I have gone under, I've come out, I'm in newness of life, and you're no longer sinner. Sinner stays under the water. Sinner is under there and it's gone. And it doesn't come out with you. A whole different person comes out of the water. But under the courtroom situation where you get to go free, you are a sinner saved by grace. Nothing has changed about you. You didn't get co-crucified. You didn't go into the, into the grave and come out. He takes your place. challenge with that is it messes up your identity and you end up struggling with your old sinful thoughts and attitudes and actions for year after year going why why didn't he save me not knowing actually he he does he takes you under into death he leaves the old you behind he brings you out into a newness of life some of us need to get re-baptized at some point perhaps because this didn 't connect for us, we didn 't understand even what we were doing, we just got wet. we took a bath in front of a bunch of people. It was awkward. <laughs> uh, let me add a thought here this This is such a such a big statement. I know Easter is the day we celebrate the resurrection, so What if Jesus hadn't been resurrected? If he hadn't been resurrected, you'd still be forgiven. See, under the Old Testament system, they had these lambs, and they would kill one a year, and it was called the atonement lamb, and it covered the people's sins for that year. And they did this every year, and they had to keep doing it over and over again. So when Jesus comes as the one true final fulfillment of that picture that was pointing to him for 1,500 years, he steps in and he dies. In his death, he's fulfilled the picture because none of those atonement lambs were ever raised from the dead. Amen. The lamb just had to die for you to get forgiven. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Good Friday gets you forgiven. Good Friday, when he dies, when he goes to the cross and he dies, is what releases forgiveness into the earth. The atonement lambs actually, they never beat the lambs either. They also never crucified one of the lambs. Bah. That's <laughs> a pretty awkward picture when you think about it. They never beat the lambs. They never crucified the lambs. None of the lambs got resurrected. What Jesus is doing is kind of different than what the Jews had been expecting for 1,500 years of killing a lamb every year for forgiveness of sin. Jesus did a whole lot of other stuff that you're going, well, uh, we never did that, and that never happened, and that's different. So there's something that changed about the story. See, forgiveness the lambs would just have their throat slit. If you didn't know, they weren't crucified. They just slit their throat. And so if Jesus had just died, think about this. Remember when King Herod, around you know the, probably the worst part of the Christmas story, King Herod's killing all the kids under two years old, trying to kill Jesus? If he had killed Jesus, we still would have a new covenant of forgiveness. He could have killed a two-year-old Jesus in the perfect blood of the perfect lamb. You would be forgiven. He's only had to die and have bloodshed for us to be forgiven. So what's Easter about? See, we didn't want to, he didn't just want us to be united with him in his death. He wanted us to be united with him in resurrection. We don't just die with him And stay there. We don't just get forgiven. Because you could be forgiven and you could receive forgiveness today and not become a new person if there was no resurrection. The resurrection is you're not just united with him in his death, you're united with him in his resurrection as well. The resurrection is what brings you out of the grave. See, the cross brings you forgiveness But the empty tomb brings you grace of being a new creation. See, when he walked out of the grave, so did you. That's the picture. You get to come out into a newness of life. That's why the lambs that never got resurrected in the Old Testament, they didn't bring people newness of life. The writer of Hebrews says that they would offer these lambs year after year. They would go, they'd kill the lamb, they'd put it, the blood on the, on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, and they'd put it there, and they'd walk out still feeling guilty for their sins. Even though God had forgiven them, there is a disconnect. So what Jesus does is he does it once for all, absolute forgiveness, not just for that year But in every direction, both past, present, future, forgiveness is released to everyone and all. It's completely released. The God the Father is not sitting on the throne deciding today who to forgive. When you come before his throne, the answer is you're forgiven. You're welcome here. You're forgiven. You're welcome here. Welcome home, son. There's no question of, will you forgive me again? He's, "Mm, I don't know if you really are repenting good enough. He's not asking that question because he already chose to release forgiveness toward everyone in the timeline, past, present, future. That doesn't mean it's automatic. You still have to come home to be a part of the relationship. If the prodigal son stayed out here rolling around in the mud forever and never came home to the father, he wouldn't come into relationship. And the father's not going to force that relationship to happen because that's not how love operates. Love love can't force things. So love is going to open the opportunity and welcome the son to come home, but it's not going to push the whole situation. So the one other thought about why, why did Jesus have to go through such a horrible death? It looks like punishment. That's, that's what our mind thinks. And in Isaiah 53, it even says earlier in the, in the same passage, it says, we considered him stricken of God. We considered him, meaning that when we look at the cross, we think, oh, God must be really angry. God must be pouring out all this wrath or something. But Isaiah's not saying he was. He's saying that's our misunderstanding. We considered him stricken by God, but he wasn't actually stricken by God. He's with God working together. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God the Father and God the Son, if you picture it this way, I picture it, the, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, the, God the Holy Spirit sitting around the kitchen table in heaven. They're looking at the planet going, how do we get a relationship with these people? They are lost, they're confused, they're living in pain, they're, they're messing up their lives, they're hurting each other. How do we restore this thing? How do we get this relationship back? And Jesus says, how about this? I will go down there and put on flesh. I'll become one of them. So they send him down. He goes out of, out of the kitchen. He goes down. He gets onto our side of it. He gets incarnated. This is Christmas. Now moving forward 30 years, right? So Christmas, now we're up here. He does ministry. He shows what the Father is like for three and a half years. Talks about him demonstrating the kingdom, that, that simply means he's showing what it's like under his rulership. Under his rulership, people get healed. The, the oppressed get free. The emotional lives are restored. Marriages, families, a uh, 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 resurrection of, of people is happening. All of this happens under Jesus. So he draws this whole picture. And then after three and a half years, he goes to the cross. At the cross, the Father is working with the Son together. The two of them are working together to create a new covenant because they're living under this old covenant from Moses and Mount Sinai. And you guys remember some of those stories from the book of Exodus. Or maybe you watched the Charlton Heston movie. (laughs) So they're living under this old system with rules and punishment and Ten Commandments and the whole deal. And Jesus at the last supper, the night before he's going to get crucified, he's sitting with his, his 12 disciples and he holds up the cup and he says, this beautiful Malbec from Australia. <laughs> uh, it was probably not. Um, he holds up the wine and he says, this is the blood of my new covenant of forgiveness. See, the new deal he's making with the father, the whole point of it. Is forgiveness. The old system, the whole system was based on rules and obeying them or being cursed. Kind of a rough system. So the new system is we want relationship. God the Father wants to welcome these people home. He wants to know people. He wants to restore the family of God in the earth. He wants to take us back to the Garden of Eden. This is his goal. And so with that perspective, he says, I'm going to make a whole new deal. We'll get Jesus to stand on one side, God the Father to stand on the other side, and we'll make the new covenant together, and then we'll invite people to come be a part of the family. Everything about the courtroom scene is wrong. Every little piece of it. God the Father is not angry. God the Father... Uh, let, me, let me replace the seven lies with seven truths. Let me hear it. Uh, I'll say it this way. Number one, the Father and Son created a plan together to make forgiveness for all people. The Father never turned away from the Son. The Father forgave sin. He didn't punish it. The Father was pleased to purge us from the plague of sin. He, uh, the truth is that he died to resurrect us, not in our place. He didn't take your place. You went together and came out a new person. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a new creation and a part of his family. And I, I'll finish with one, one passage here. Hebrews chapter 2 Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children, speaking of humanity, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him that holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Some people, they they lay out this story in their mind that the devil was somehow surprised by Easter. Like on Good Friday, he thought he won. Like, got him. I got him on the the tree. I got him crucified. I win. And then three days later, oh, oh my Jesus. (laughs) This is not at all true, though. If we back up in the story, there's a point in Matthew 18 where Peter is trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And he says to him, No, my Lord, it will never be so. And Jesus turns and he rebukes him. And if you pay attention to what Jesus says, he says, Get behind me, Satan. Not Peter. He's rebuking the devil that's speaking through Peter in that moment. And what is that devil trying to say? Don't go to the cross. Don't you do it, Jesus. It's going to really mess up my plan. (laughs) And he says, get behind me, Satan. Because he knows where he's headed. He knows what he's doing. He's on his mission. He's going to get to that cross. And he and the Father are going to create a covenant of forgiveness and get their family back. And the devil's not like, If I scheme and do this, I I can try to make this work and I can get him on the cross. He's like, Don't go to the cross. You'll mess everything up. He's trying to stop him. And he's not shocked when he comes out of the grave. The disciples are a little bit surprised. (laughs) But the devil knew what was going on, he knew what was coming. And so this amazing passage, I love this. Uh, Just with that picture in mind, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Such a beautiful passage. We don't have to be held in slavery of the fear of death anymore. See, Jesus has come and he's set us free. Free from the fear of an angry father, free from the fear of a, a record-keeping, unloving judge. He's set us free from the the fear of, of will he actually forgive me one more time? And they've established a relationship of forgiveness and they open the door for us and welcome us home. I'd like to ask us to stand this morning. I want to pray over us as we finish. Wherever you are, just uh, place your hands on your heart with me if you would. Father, I thank you that you're a good father. I'm sorry for any distortions of how we've seen you over the years. But you're actually kind, you're loving, you're merciful. And that you and your son work together to regain your family, to provide a way to forgive everything before we've even done it, to bring us back into relationship. And if we've held any of those distorted pictures of you, Father, today we lay them down. And today in our heart, we just reapproach you and say, I misunderstood you. I'm sorry for what I believed about you or any other distortions I believed. I see that you wanted to forgive and embrace, that you wanted to welcome me home. And I say yes to that. I say yes to you and your call to come home and be forgiven and be a part of your family again. Thank you for breaking me free from emotional, mental, spiritual bondage and leaving that old version of me in the grave. Thank you for making me a new person today. Thank you for bringing a new me out of the grave to walk with you to walk free, and like Jesus said, in a life of abundance, an abundant life of overflowing joy. Not a giant system of rules and a judge for a father, but a life of joy and forgiveness and peace and connection. And I say yes to that today. Father, I thank you for those who are, who are saying this to you for the first time or who are saying this to you after many years of walking away. I thank you for restoring their heart and bringing fresh life to them. I thank you that you're going to make them into a completely fresh person. I thank you for the life that, and the joy that's going to flow out of yeah. them. I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this week's message. Feel free to contact us for further resources at newhopecom.org.